This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Welcome to Peoples and Things, a podcast about human life with technology. I'm your host, Lee Vinsel, an associate professor of science, technology, and society at Virginia Tech. You can reach me with comments and suggestions at leevinsel at gmail.com or on Twitter at STS underscore news. I would love to hear from you. There's a deep tendency in our culture, sometimes called solutionism, amongst other names, where when we encounter a problem, we want to fix it. I'm not sure we have a great study yet that nails down the history of this desire, where it comes from, or how much it cuts across global cultures and historical periods. I remember the Christian ethicist Stanley Hauerwas talking about how you can see this propensity come out when people visit others in the hospital. There's an urge to do something. How can I help is the mindset we have. Hauerwas says that really the greatest gift we can give isn't solutions, but presence, being there in the moment with the other person in their pain and uncertainty. And of course, this solutionist desire is one thing when we apply it to ourselves or our loved ones. And even then, we can do it unkindly or in a perfectionist manner. But it can become another thing entirely when the urge is connected with social hierarchy and power. We can think of the history of eugenics and other forms of social control, where some groups of people reached into the lives of others to fix them in ways that were unjust and oppressive. I thought a lot about this propensity when reading J. Preet Verdi's Hearing Happiness, Deafness Cures in History. As Jay explains during our conversation, she became deaf at the age of four, and after a lifetime of trying out various cures, and I'm putting that word in quotation marks, Hearing happiness was the result of a process of her coming out as a deaf person. The book details the long history of attempts to fix deaf people, including a great deal of quackery. Towards the end of the conversation, Jay and I also talk about what a world beyond solutionism would look like. And in large part, the alternative vision Jay puts forward is about recognizing and meeting individuals where they are and giving up on fantasies that there is some norm we're all going to fit. I had a wonderful time chatting with Jay. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Get excited.
Jay, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you for having me on the show. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Hearing Happiness is it's such a great book. Um, when you talk about it with strangers, which you've been doing a lot recently, how do you <laughs> <laughs> how do you explain what the book's about and what you were trying to do with it? One way I like to promote my book, especially to non-academic, is I refer to hearing happiness as my coming out story as the deaf woman and use that to pivot into explaining how, you know, I struggled pretty much my whole life trying to suppress my deafness, trying to pass as hearing, but also as someone who relied very much on hearing aids and other kinds of communication accommodation, whether it is sitting up in the front seat of my classroom so I can lip read the teacher or wearing an FM system or trying not to wear an FM system mm -hmm. when I was a kid. But I like to position that as the narrative of the book going forward, because I think people can connect to it on a much more intimate level. Like this is not yeah. just a history that's been regulated in the past, but has issues that still very much influence people's lives today. So um, it's also a book I wrote when I was dealing with my own struggles with shifting the hearing aid types that I was wearing. So I wore mm -hmm. analog hearing aids my whole life, which um, for those of you who don't know, is basically just amplifies sound in your surrounding environment. But by the time I was in like my early 30s, my audiologist tells me that there's no company anymore that could repair my analog hearing aids if they broke and my own maintenance of them wasn't good enough. Like they come to a point when you need professional service, right? Yeah, yeah. So they're telling me that, oh, hey, all the major hearing aid companies have completely shifted to digital and that I was their last client who resisted digital hearing aids for 10 years. So I was uh -huh. the only one left who hadn't made that trip. And then, yeah, so I had no choice but to get digital hearing aids. And it was a two, three year process of struggling to relearn things and also coming to terms with my grief and losing certain skills I had, like yeah. being able to hear on the telephone. And I'm dealing with a personal crisis and thinking about what it means for me to communicate with people and what it means for me to identify myself or not as a deaf yeah. person. And then, you know, I'm in the archive and I am reading all these people's letters where they are talking about their experiences of living as a deaf person and all the different choices in which they are selecting, you know, medical cures or buying a patent medicine product or even asking an expert which hearing device best works for them. And I see myself so much in these historical actors. Yeah. And eventually, you know, I thought, I can write a history of deafness cures without talking about myself too, because I am part of this history. So that's kind of how and hearing happiness emerged the way it did. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I love the personal dimension of the the book. It it's just so great. I mean, the other there's another personal dimension too, isn't that you know it came out of your career as a historian where you were part of it is that you were writing this blog right from from the hands of quacks for a long time so how is the book related to that project from the hands of quacks was one just a space on the internet for me to talk about my struggle of being a PhD academic um, and how I was still navigating what it means to be a student how it means to be doing history because I actually did my my undergrad uh, in philosophy of science. So I was really having a All hard right. time shifting to history. But what ended up happening over the years blogging for this website, I ended up having two different types of audiences that didn't always interact. The first was the academic history of science blogging, blog, sorry, um, the academic history of science community of bloggers and readers some of whom you know, were connecting with each other over blogging and arguing that it was also a legitimate form of scholarship. This, this mm. is like years ago when people yeah, were yeah. looking down on blogging <laughs> yeah, and yeah. not really taking Twitter seriously as an academic <laughs> tool. So this was years ago. But I had this wonderful group of community. But with them, I was talking about archive struggles and some of the more historiographical debates I was working through. But because of the subject matter of my dissertation, which was on 
Eustodri for deafness in the 19th century, I was also drawing in readers who were deaf. Mm-hmm. And one of my most viral posts was actually a history of the London Asylum for the Deaf and Dumb, which was one of the first public deaf schools in England. And then actually by 2014 was still very much in existence as a mm-hmm. primary school for deaf children. So this post went viral and I even had parents reaching out to me asking if I could help them get the kid involved in this school. And I had to explain wow. so many times I have nothing to do with the school. I'm just an historian. But I started to notice my audience changing a little bit and started to write posts that were specifically catered to the general reader. Hearing happiness comes from that history, not from my dissertation. Mm-hmm. And it comes from the recognition, I think, that there was an audience of people who were interested in knowing more, not just about the history of deafness, but also about the choices people made for medical treatment. Mm -hmm. And the big question of why were people so willing, I think, to try out what we would consider to be quack medicine. So like, what really is that history there? So I kind of, when I first pitched my book to different presses, I pitched it as, you know, the extension of my blog. Mm-hmm. So I think that also helped me to play around with my narrative style a little yeah. bit, not just restrict myself in writing academically. I mean, the style is wonderful throughout the book, Jay. And um, was it a time where presses found that extension of the blog interesting or was it still, was there some disdain? How did How did that conversation go? I don't do things in a conventional manner. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I I think about like my colleagues who write the whole book manuscript and then pitch the manuscript to presses yeah. or people who have like a full book proposal and shop around for press. I basically had a paragraph that was something along the lines of, this is a cool idea for a book. Are you interested in publishing it? And send it to three different presses um, to see which one would bite. I mean, it was just... Honestly, at that time, mm. I wasn't really thinking about a career in academia. This wasn't my quote-unquote tenure book or anything. I just mm. thought, this is a book that needs to be written and published. And at the time when I wrote that paragraph pitch, I had been done research. I haven't been the archive. I have no idea what this book was going to look like. I didn't even really have a title. But I just had an idea, and I just took the leap and pitched it. But what we have to remember, too, is that presses are businesses. And mm-hmm. one way to sell any book is to ensure that there is an audience who is willing to buy those books. Mm-hmm. And when I pitched my idea for a book, I had about, um, I think, 12 Downton's followers slash subscribers for my blog. Mm-hmm. And for the press, that's like, oh, that 12 Downton people who could possibly buy your book. So yeah, that yeah. was kind of, that was the extension, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. was like, I already have a readership base here. Mm. So all that I really have to do is transfer that readership base from the blog over to the book. Right on. You began the book mostly in the 19th century with kind of occasional look looks back. Um, and by today's standards, as you've already said, you know, a lot of the things you cover are kind of quackish cures and quotation marks, including breathing into the ear, eating chili peppers, perforating the eardrum. Uh, why did you choose to book, begin the book there in the 19th century? Was there something that really stood out about that moment um, when it came to deafness? Um, I, that's a good question. For me, it came out from my PhD dissertation and that you know, this whole medicalization of deafness, this whole approach to surgical treatments actually really did emerge in the 19th century. Before that, there were medical attempts to treat deafness, but they Mm. weren't actually grouped in a professional manner. It was more like this trial and error process. But by 1850, you see the emergence of all surgery, what we now call otolaryngology. You know, it emerged as, a specialized field specifically for thinking about how to diagnose, prescribe, and treat all kinds of deafness. So I decided to start there because when we think about deafness cure, like what does that really mean? It's really about like fixing the body, um, restoring the body back to quote unquote normal. 
So for me, the 19th century seemed like a logical place to start, but that doesn't mean, mm-hmm. of course, that there weren't any kind of cures before that. As you said, I do work yeah. flat even earlier, but mm-hmm. I really wanted to centralize the medicalization narrative because that was also part of the more um, longer argument that I was making throughout the book that really connected medicalization with normality and how technology kind of fits in in that relationship. Your second chapter is titled Ear Spectacles, which is a title I I really love. Um, And you find a whole range of mechanical and other contraptions that people are Mm -hmm. are putting forward for to cure deafness, again, in in, cure in quotation marks. But I mean, I think that this is like it was dizzying. I think, you know, you talk about how confusing it can be for consumers, you know, later. Mm -hmm. It for me, the, the sheer variety was overwhelming, really. So I mean, what did you find most striking about all of these contraptions that were being put forward? You know, a lot of reviewers have used that phrase, a dizzying away of <laughs> example, like almost kind of repetitive. And I always reply back, but that's the point. Why were yes. there so many, right? Like why? And, and it shocked me too when I'm yeah. in in the museum where how they're looking at some of these examples in the archive. And I actually had like a, a little database where I was keeping track of every single contraption that I came across that referred to cure for deafness or help with hearing loss or anything mm. like that. There were so many and it seems almost ridiculous. Like why are they all like fighting for the same market? And yeah. why were deaf people even seeing this as an option when we think about you know, the danger of sending electrical storages directly to your ears or even believing that radium or vibration, if you put them in your ear long enough, would miraculously cure your deafness. But I think there was something, what I saw when I was doing this research was that this kind of trust in the technology, mm. this expectation that you have the material thing, whether it is a box that stands electric shocks or a tiny artificial eardrum that you put in your ear. There is this trust that this is an improved, advanced piece of machinery that could actually help and yeah. perhaps a more um, more advanced than just trying like a folk remedy or any kind of herbal medicine. So yeah. I think that's one reason but we also have to take into consideration the legislation changes around patent medicine that emerged in the 20th century. So with the passing of the Food and Drug Act in 1906, all kinds of patent medicine that was basically like oil-based or other kind of like pharmaceutical grade type of medicine, they were regulated under the original FDA Act. But the mechanical therapy, what then? Mm-hmm. So all kinds of electrical products that were promoted to be, you know, electrotherapeutic devices, whether it's handheld vibrators or, again, big boxes that stand electric um, surges to the ear, those one covers. So they actually were a much better money-making stream than patent mm. medicine, so, which is why in the early 20th century we see so many of that until 1938 when the FDA cracked down on these kinds of electric devices. And what's also interesting, I know from the chapter, um, is that even hearing aid companies relied on these kinds of electric devices too. So yeah. they're selling hearing aids as the new advanced technology, as an assistive technology, but knowing that their customers were often frustrated with the lack of a permanent cure, they also offered, and sometimes at discounted prices, mm. handheld vibrators or massagers or other kind of quackish electrotherapy so the customers could at least feel secure possibly that they were trying everything at their disposal to cure the hearing sorry to cure their deafness and i think this is a the story of like too much variety maybe is something we see in other histories of technology i'm i'm primarily familiar with it in the early history of the automobile where people had to choose mm-hmm. between early batteries steam driven cars all kinds of internal combustion engines. There's just so much variety that it seems dizzying. I know it's often hard to reconstruct what you know the average deaf person's experiencing during that time. But do you think it felt like oh, there's ten or twenty or th- you know a bunch of things on offer, mm-hmm. and you're trying to negotiate that as as a deaf person? 
Well, absolutely. I mean, one of the greatest strengths I had as a historian working the archives is that the American Medical Association had thousands and thousands of letters written by deaf people all across America because what they were doing was they were reaching out to Arthur Cramp, who was the director of the Bureau of Investigation, you know, the agency yeah. that looked at the validity of all kinds of medical therapies and gizmos and gadgets and patent medicine. Um, so these letters really reveal how people were struggling with their options. I mean, there are some letters that are basically just a page of people listing all the different things that they tried or listing the things that they saw were available on the market and asking for advice about how to choose amongst them. I mean, yeah. so many times I've read a letter written by a deaf person saying they're overwhelmed with their choices and they mm -hmm. don't know how to pick which one is the best for their type of hearing loss. And, you know, their personal physicians aren't really helpful either. So they need somebody who's an expert in this technology. But I see mm -hmm. this over and over again in the letters. So, well, again, what good is the choice here? The variety was really because the manufacturers and the innovators and the entrepreneurs mm -hmm. all trying to make a living. Um, but if you think about it from the perspective of the deaf customer, this was overwhelming. Like it was yeah. really difficult to select which one was not only the best treatment, but also which one they could justify spending money on. And I yeah. think really yeah. like see this coming out more clearly, um, especially when I started to look at the letter during the um, depression year, mm. I see people trying to decide, well, I only have $5. Which one do I pick for this $5? Yeah. Um, and I need a hearing device because I can get a job or I need one for work or et cetera. Yeah. But um, yeah, the choices of possibilities, I think, really did overwhelm the deaf customer. Yeah, contrary to some schools of economics, the market doesn't just automatically spit out like what the best option is, right? It's not clear. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> Definitely not clear. Yeah. Uh, the, the creation of the, the, electro, the electric hearing aid uh, seems like a, a major turning point in this story. So what did the hearing aid uh, mean to deaf people when it was first introduced? And did it just seem like another one of these gizmos out there? Or was there something different about it? Um, there was definitely something different. So in 1898, you know, Milovis Hutchinson introduced his Aculion, so which was that um, basically a desktop hearing aid. So all the components were in a box that had to be placed flat on a table, and then a deaf person would like wear a headphone and listen. When he took this machine out on basically on tour, like he would go to. Mm deaf social groups and organizations and even uh, deaf conferences and kind of give a demonstration. You see, I think, a mix of excitement, but also fear mm -hmm. who, were, who were being interviewed by reporters or who were documenting the experience at the demonstration. The excitement was, oh my goodness, I could hear sound. Oh, I think I hear something. And Hutchinson was actually demonstrating to predominantly um, culturally deaf people mm. so people who grew up with sign language or part of hereditary deafness families or who went to deaf school and i think that was really smart on his part because if we think about the extreme of our customer bases these were deaf people who have never heard sound would be like one extreme of mm. um, a customer and if they could hear sounds then that's really powerful testament to his device so but the problem was that the deaf people, when they were trying out the device during the demonstration, there was this sense of fear because they didn't really know for certain what they were hearing was actually sound or they were yeah. being fooled to hearing sound. Mm. And this is something that they expressed in um, in a newspaper that was circulated among deaf, deaf people mm -hmm. or they testified that to reporters. But there's also this excitement, I think, about the wonders of electricity. I mean, this mm, is like a yes, right. century where people are starting to both be fearful and excited about yeah. the potential of electricity to mm. modernize society. So there was this excitement that perhaps now we're going to find a technology that can really help deaf people. I mean, yeah. the telephone was already like starting to become popular. You know, you have the wireless and things mm -hmm. like that. So why not develop a hearing aid as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, 
there's also all kinds of quackish things going on with electricity during that time, right? They're like pumping it into the ground with crops to mm-hmm. try to make crops grow faster. So, I mean, it yep. would have been confusing then about whether this was really promising or not. I think so. But then again, it's really about, I think, the expectation of being normal. If yeah. there's a technology that, uh, that's available for the people to pass this hearing or even better, to permanently restore the hearing and permanently cure deafness, then why not try it out? So I think yeah. this is the message that we're coming coming out with some of the early 20th century hearing aids is that mm. we we have harnessed the wonder of electricity to create yes. a product and it can do for deaf people what nothing in the previous generation has ever done. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think the building up of these kind of quackish products as well was really centering on that rhetoric, like deaf people yeah. who you want to hear, who's yeah, going to yeah. do that? And I think that's the kind of messaging that was being developed at the time. Some of your more recent research examines how uh, hearing aid companies are tried to form relationships with deaf and hard of hearing folks via salespeople. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a paper you gave uh, last week at a conference. So what have you been finding in your work on the history of hearing aid fitting? And how does that fit with the story you've been telling? Well, one thing I didn't really go into detail in hearing happiness because it didn't really fit with the overall thesis of the book was how did like the hearing aid companies not just work with deaf people, but how did deaf people reflect back to them? Mm-hmm. So I, I was really curious about, for one thing, you know, you have all this advertising, promotional campaigns, relaying the messaging about normality to deaf people, like putting that idea that wearing a hearing aid is the deaf person's social responsibility. The same way, you know, you have to get a job and pay taxes and send your kids yeah. to school and get vaccinated and all of that. You wear a hearing mm. aid. And this was the message that dominated hearing aid advertising for most of the 20th century. But when I look at archive material of deaf people talking about the choices of hearing aids or other kind of quackish medical products or patent medicine, I, I was really trying to also find well, what did they think about this advertising message? Mm-hmm. How did it influence their decision to, you know, feel pressure to uphold their social responsibility or decide whether or not they wanted to be deaf and communicate with sign language or not? Or like, mm. how, I was really curious about really looking at the history from the deaf person's perspective. And this was something that was really challenging to find in the archive. Mm. Um, because, you know, it will, again, it really tells us about how we preserve history and whose stories get maintained. But one thing that really became clear is the hearing aid dealer, so the salesman who did direct selling directly to the customer, yeah. they were the ones who were essentially taking the messaging back and forth between mm. the customers and the industry. So now keep in mind that deaf and hard of hearing people did collaborate with the hearing aid industry. You know, Mara Mills work, sure. for example, had shown that deaf people were working as testers and engineers for mm-hmm. the creation of things like the printed circuit and um, the transistor. So Mara had done incredible work on that. But I was really more concerned about the consumer angle as well. Mm-hmm. And what became really revealing is I was at the archive looking at all these trade manual for dealers and these tiny books that also included step-by-step details on how um, a dealer should appeal to the emotional state of the customer Mm. and some of the dealers were like making comments like oh you know this 40 year old woman her major concern is being able to hear her baby and she doesn't really want to wear a hearing aid because the wires complicate her domestic duties like they're putting all these like And for me, the more I look into it, the more it seems as evident that the dealers were also communicating what their client's concern was back to the industry. And the industry was kind of embracing some of these mm. notes as a way to update the advertising material or update the marketing strategy. So I thought that was really yeah. fascinating. I mean, yeah. this really goes into um, a much longer term project. But mm. out of that relationship is the issue of fitting. So yeah. fitting is a process where you have to match a particular hearing aid instrument to the 
range of um, hearing loss that's mapped on an audiogram. So you get tested for your hearing loss and then you measure what that loss is and the range of frequency. And a good hearing aid is one that targets a specific frequency loss, especially the loss where speech is measured so that a person could be able to hear like vowels and consonants and things like that. And fitting was always a process for vacuum tube hearing aids. I mean, the industry knew that this is how the engineers and design created it. But how do you sell fitting to a customer? And why should a customer care about fitting? And that's mm. the different conversation. And what the dealer was doing is that fitting was a demonstration of not just how a hearing aid was working and how effective it was, but on how it was tailored to match this specific individual's need. So there's something like really yeah. personal about the technology. And the process of improving the technical specification of fitting is one history, a very difficult mm -hmm. history, because in order to proceed with it, I have to like teach myself acoustic physics. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. You know, like the technical nature of um, physics and sound science and things like that. Yeah. And then you have this marketing history about, is that just a buzzword? Like when we say individualized fitting, is that just a campaign? Yeah. Or is that something really rooted in science and mm -hmm. technology. So that's kind of what I'm working on right now. I'm really interested in seeing how fitting became a process that operated both at the scientific level, but also on the consumer level and how we can kind of understand the nature of technology through this relationship. Yeah. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yeah, I mean, I, it comes out in your book in a variety of ways. But one thing I like about this mm -hmm. this thread is that, you know, it's an ongoing relationship. It's not, you know, just like my amputee friends who need, keep needing to get, you know, um, prosthetics replaced and such. This is not something that you just buy and then your problems are fixed and you walk away forever, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, I really like that kind of ongoing relationship story is, is an important yeah, absolutely. one. Absolutely, yeah. And then, you know, it... It also kind of explains some of the more popular conversations that people have had. At first, they were like, well, hearing aids are just like getting glasses. If you can wear glasses, why can't you wear a hearing aid? And then yeah. the argument over the 20th century developed into what well, hearing aids are not like eyeglasses. They are much more sophisticated than that. Yeah. We need this, all these body of experts to come in to properly fit a hearing aid to the deaf customer. Your book contains uh, so many wonderful photos. And one of the most striking to my eye is the picture meant to show women how to do their hair and use accessories to mm -hmm. hide their hearing aids. So as hearing aids, you know, they become electronic and then, you know, they become smaller. What did the promise of invisibility mean to users? Well, invisibility has always been a selling point for all kinds of hearing devices from mechanical ear trumpet in the 19th century that were disguised to be worn in a woman performed hairdo, or if some of them I've seen actually even concealed in a man's heavy bushy beard, um, <laughs> or, dis <laughs> or disguised as walking sticks or flower vases. Mm -hmm. And then in the early 20th century with vacuum tube hearing aids, the visibility was about disguising the wires and battery straps and the actual receiver on your body. And like, so like wearing it underneath your clothes, making mm. use of special harnesses. And then um, the post-Second World War technological development with the transistor button battery, the printed circuit, allowed hearing aids to become smaller and smaller. So the box type hearing aids, so the one you wore in your body, 
not only start to get smaller to so all the component pieces are in one unit mm. essentially but also eventually they became smaller so that they weren't either behind your ear or in your ear mm. so with this history of miniaturization you also get the design trends toward invincibility. How do we continue to disguise the device on your body? Yeah. Even going so far as to hide it in your hair. And all kinds of hearing companies, actually, I think every single hearing aid company advise their consumers on how to disguise their product mm. and or buy other kinds of accessories to help with that disguising. Mm-hmm. What I find fascinating, and this is also a project that I'm working on now, and something I'm very, very excited about, is if we look into the material culture of these hearing aids, though, if we actually look at the products themselves, how they're designed, we get a real strong sense of aesthetics. So there are body one hearing aids that are painted blue or have gold or deco microphone grills. And my thinking is basically, if these devices are meant to be hidden, then what's the point of all the design? Yeah. So why not just make them boring, ugly medical product or flash on that flesh colored mm. you know, paint? Why yeah. bother with creating gold or silver or bother with these kind of decorative mm-hmm. elements? And it seems to me that, well, these are features that appeal to the customer. You know, mm. like they would pick a woman, for example, would pick a color that fit her own fashion or individual yeah. style. Maybe a man would want something that's more sleek and modern. So, I mean, they're really to appeal to the customer. And then paradoxically say, okay, you pick something that's beautiful and gold. Okay, now hide it. Yeah. Right. Right. And in, in the backdrop of this history is that people making their own adjustment. They mm. are putting decorative features on their devices. They are creating beautiful harnesses yeah. with hand sewn beads to, you know, like really professing a sense of identity and affirmation of their mm. deafness. Mm-hmm. They are showing off their products. So you get this overlapping history occurring at the same time. And, and I'm really excited about this project because I think it can really tell us so much more about design history and the expectation we have or don't have about medical products, I think. So, I mean, unless we give uh, listeners like the sense that this is a story of progress, mm-hmm. it's not like uh, quackery or fad cures mm-hmm. like go away after the 19th century, early 20th century, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's still, you have a, a chapter on later kind of fad, fad cures. So, what are some of the cures you find after World War II that people are trying to push? Um, so one common fad after the Second World War was acupuncture. So it, it really comes up. I mean, people were starting to embrace the like Eastern medicine, yeah. like New Age type of philosophy. Uh-huh. And acupuncture become really common starting around the 1960s. And another one that's still to today, I'm still surprised, but not really surprised when I see it on the menu list for spa treatment is ear candling. Right? Like when people like basically put wax, hot wax in your ear and then pull out deep breath and natural wax and things like that. I mean, yeah. you know, candling dates all the way back to the 16th century. I mean, that's the, that's the oldest example I found, but it is still there. There's also what I call fake hearing aids. Mm. So, like, if you go to Walgreens, for example, there's that as seen on TV, 1995 yeah, yeah. hearing aid, very basic and doesn't really do anything for someone otherwise, like, who had anything more than um, a mild temporary hearing loss. Mm, mm-hmm. No, I think these are the most prominent examples I can think of, but they're definitely there. Like these kind of yeah. treatments are still there. If we do a quick internet search, I'm sure you'll find examples of like certain foods that could help improve your hearing. Oh yeah. That, uh-huh. know, like, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the internet, the source of bad information over and over, right? Yeah. Well, it's, we'll Google deafness cure and see what comes up. It'll be horrifying, yeah. I'm sure. 
Mm-hmm. I really like how you you bring in the the history of cochlear implants into this this larger history you tell. Mm-hmm. So do you, do you think that cochlear implants introduced new dynamics, or did you see it more as kind of a playing out of the patterns that you'd under uncovered from the last you know hundred hundred and fifty years? I think both in their creation and in their dissemination as a technology cure, it's the same pattern, but it's more assertive, I would say. Yeah. It's the merging of surgery and technology. And when cochlear implants were first introduced, you know, it was promised a new miracle that would solve all the kinds of complications people were having with hearing aids or other kind of surgical treatments, you know, like issues of battery life or wires being annoying or not being fitted properly with regard to hearing aids. But also this idea that there is a subsection of, so I mean, if you think about hearing as an audiological spectrum, you can also think Mm -hmm. about deafness as a spectrum. So on one end of the spectrum are people who deafness can't be fixed or improved with hearing aids. Cochlear implant target those group. Yeah. And again, it comes with the idea of a fix. Yes. So you can live your whole life as a deaf person. You can rely on sign language. You can get a job. You can be an educator. You can have a family. But as long as you are deaf, you are not fixed. And that's the messaging that emerged in the 1980s and 1990s with mm-hmm. cochlear implants. And the deaf communities were really worried about cultural genocide. What would mm. happen over decades and decades of use with cochlear implants where children as young as one or two years old are forced to, you know, undergo surgery and be fitted with an implant? And there's also this recognition that a lot of deaf children are actually born into hearing family who might mm. not otherwise be associating themselves or even familiar with deaf culture. So there was a real worry from deaf community that cochlear implant would eradicate deafness as this rich cultural diversity. But by, you know, the early 2000, the conversation shifted a little bit, where it's really, again, about choice. You make that choice about how you want Mm. to live. And part of that choice is selecting amongst different types of technologies or tools or treatments that are at your disposal. And again, this is not something new. And if we look at all the different ways that people have negotiated their medical option, we see cochlear implant as just another line of these um, tools. But um, I think in the 1990s and early 2000s, the worry was really about the top-down pressure to eliminate differences. And I see in the past 10 years, the next generation of cochlear implants. And we're talking about like auditory brainstem implants and yeah. things like that. And interestingly enough, right when my book was finished and I sent it to the publisher and I'm in Virginia giving my first book event, my phone started buzzing because the story about CRISPR technology uh, yeah. broke out. And I'm getting all this like messaging from reporters yeah asking me to comment and I said I can't I'm giving my first book talk this is <laughs> another example of that yeah yeah but I actually opened up my talk reflecting on the fact that look how many messages I got from journalists all yeah. connecting this idea of CRISPR technology as the way to eliminate deafness just another example yeah yeah I mean no that's that you went exactly where I wanted to go because I think part of what you end up uncovering and you deal with really explicitly in that last chapter is this kind of fantasy of the radically transformed Mm -hmm. tomorrow, right? That's always seems to be with us uh, around so many issues, but deafness is a wonderful example as if it's like tomorrow there'll be CRISPR or tomorrow there'll be this thing and it's just going to take care of it for us. Right? Yes. The reliance we have, I think on the technology, but in expecting technology to solve all the problems, I think we only end up revealing socioeconomic disparities here. Yeah. When people talk about digital hearing aids, you know, as something that we must have, there's not a, a real com- honest conversation, I think, mm. about the cost of these things. I mean, when my audiologist is telling me, Jay, you know, you're behind the curve, like catch up with the latest trend. Yeah. Why are you being old fashioned? Just get digital hearing aids. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. I spend my whole life 
training myself to live and hear with analog hearing aid. Like literally mm. my whole life, you know, I learned how to use my body language. I taught myself how to hear on the telephone. And now you're telling me none of that matters because I have mm. to like upgrade myself, you know, like the like like I'm a cyborg model that was outdated and we have to like ship to the new factory version. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but with digital is so expensive. Yeah. And not only that, they have a shelf life. My mm. last analog hearing aid, I had them for 12 years with maintain, maintaining and repairing and just, you know, just keeping it going yeah. as long as I could or sending it off to the factory to get repaired if needed. My last digital hearing aid didn't even last three years. And oh. there was a point where I was actually like trying to fix it and went to my hearing aid dealer and I said, what's happening? Like, why is it no longer working? And, and by the way, keep in mind, it took me two years to get adjusted to them. And in the third year, they stopped working. Like, what's the point of this? <laughs> and and it was really frustrating for me. It's like, I can't rely on this anymore. And yeah. then I hate, hate, hate when people promote hearing aids to me through by showing off how they have a smartphone app. I don't care yeah, about the smartphone right. app, yeah. you know? What if I yeah. don't have my phone with me? Are you telling me I can't adjust my hearing aid if I don't have my phone? Mm. So there's this over-reliance on smart technology to solve problems. Yeah. And I think sometimes we forget that not everybody benefits from these devices. I mean, don't yeah. get me wrong. When I first got my digital hearing aid, you know, I, I was wowed by how light they were, how tiny they were, how I got the color to match my hair color, because it was something I never had before. Mm-hmm. And I thought about what this would mean for my passing and hearing, how it would work out in you know, my job or things like that, how it would change my dating relationship. Like I was really thinking about that and excited about it. Again, within two years of struggling with this, it didn't matter how invincible they were. There was no point if they weren't functional for me. Yeah. I couldn't hear anything. And, you know, when I had to upgrade myself and then, by the way, another $8,000. Three years later. (laughs) Hearing aids. My first thought was, I don't care how they look. I just want them to work. I need them to work. Yeah, yeah. You know, the ones I have aren't the prettiest. They are bulky. They hurt my ears when I wear them for too long. Um, but yeah. at the very least, they're functional enough that I can go about somewhat in the same vein as I could with my analog hearing aid. But again, there's the expectation that our te- technology is going to solve our problem, but sometimes mm. it doesn't. And it makes things a lot worse. And when we think yeah. about assistive technology and acknowledge the fact that so much of assistive technology relies on an intimate relationship between the user and the machine, we have to take into consideration the user's need because the user is always going to have to adjust in some way mm. to the technology. And if the technology is not adaptable, then this is not a good relationship. No, I think there's so many lessons for designers and makers of technologies to take away from this book. I mean, the the Innovation Delusion book, when I was writing that with Andy, mm-hmm. we were talking, we got an email from this one very cranky repairman. I can't remember what we said. He was angry at us about something. But he was talking about how in his life, he was an appliance repair guy. And he was talking about like how refrigerators now all had to come with ice makers and stuff. But those are the first things to break down. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and then we have like the same thing, you know, you put like a Bluetooth uh, thing on a coffee maker or something because mm-hmm. you got to have Bluetooth on everything now. And these are often the first things to go. Yeah. So, I mean, we just like, you know, it's like this logic where we have to add all the bells and whistles. And now your hearing aids have to have an app and that's going to be super cool. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there is kind of lessons to be taken from like these technological fads and how they actually, you know, in some ways they become a detriment to users, I think. Oh, of course. I mean, and they were exactly that. They were technological fad. You know, the first time I was shopping for a digital hearing aid, the audiology is like saying, oh, Jay, this one, you know, allows you to connect to your iPod. This one gives you Wi-Fi capability. Not once <laughs> the conversation about how which one allows me to hear clearly. Yeah. I don't care about these bells and whistles. And at the end of the day, it's really about, well, what do I want a hearing aid to do? And Bluetooth is nice sometimes because I can blast music on my iPad and my partner is not bothered. So that's great. Yeah. Um, But it's not the end of the world for me if I don't have that feature anymore. Yeah. For me, if I'm not able to 
if they hear my students in a lecture hall, then I can't do my job. Yeah. And that's the problem. And that actually happened because when I first had my first pair of digital hearing aids, I went to the classroom. I couldn't hear. I had nine students. I couldn't hear any of them in front of me. I had to rely on lip reading, which is something mm. I hadn't done in the classroom in years. Mm. But I couldn't hear the nine students in front of me. But the conversation outside closed doors in the hallway, I could hear clear day. I could hear somebody <laughs> chatting away on their cell phone, but not the nine students in front of me. Wow. And, you know, again, that's why it took two years for me to adjust to that. Mm. But it's really something about, again, we talk about improved technology. We jump into the later technological bad. But what, what's the point if they don't really benefit people? You know, I wanted to ask about like kind of where you're thinking, because you know, the book is such a personal story on top of being a history. And I, I think it does a great job of interweaving these two things. But I think it's pretty common for hearing people to presume that deafness is something that we would want to cure in quotation marks, right? Which is not to say that's the right view. Uh, and often it's not. But after writing Hearing Happiness, uh, what do you think is a better way of thinking about deafness and, and hearing problems than, than this cure notion? Well, you know, like how, do, how do we trouble that, that cure notion? And is there like a better framework for people to think uh, about? I think the answer I usually give to that question, which I get quite often, you know, like how do we rethink our understanding of hearing and deafness? Again, it goes back to, well, think of deafness as a an audiological spectrum. And -hmm. people have different types of deafness and different ways of developing their identities or affirming that identity, but also different ways and living with their deafness. Some might want a hearing aid and they might want a passive hearing and, you know, they want that cure. Others might prefer sign language communication and others still might wear hearing aids and communicate just fine with lip reading. There Mm. are people who would want closed captioning and others don't. So it's a very individual experience and disability activists always tell us, and I know I follow their lead for a lot of things related to disability activism. And they say that if you really want to know about what technology interface is useful, for example, ask the person. Yeah. Then it make it make it an ordinary thing to ask people what their access needs are, or the mm. same way we are trying to better ourselves and acknowledging people pronoun or people yeah. pronunciation of their names. So make that an ordinary aspect of our relationship to each other and how we communicate as the community. Then we can acknowledge how, you know, deafness and hearing is also in a spectrum. But there's still a problem here in that I think generally there's this cultural belief mm. that so a, a cultural belief to infantilize deaf people and yes. that we need hearing people to speak for them. There was this controversy going on right now on Twitter. Um, you know that movie, Sound of Metal? Mm. Um, I, I think it's called Sound of Metal. Um, it's the movie starting a brown actor, so a Muslim actor. Mm. And it's the, the story is about a drummer who starts to lose his hearing and has to like adjust his whole life and expectation to being deaf, including learning sign language. And you know, the actor is a hearing person. And that would already create a problem for deaf people because they're like, well, why not just cast a deaf actor who can play the yeah. character with much more nuance? But what's been happening right now is that actor and the movie were nominated for an Emmy and I think it's nominated for an Oscar now. And in the whole press tour, the actor is talking about how he's benefited from conversation mm. with the deaf community and he learned that language, but none of the promotional materials are captured and no air interpreter, <laughs> right? So you're like, it's like, what? You, you really yeah. didn't learn anything at all. And mm-hmm. even if that promotional material is not the responsibility of the actor himself, it's still something that he can use his position to advocate for. But also, why not bring somebody from the deaf community to also have this conversation alongside the actor yeah. would be much more powerful. So a lot of, um, I've seen a lot of deaf activists kind of 
pushing back against this narrative because they're like, well, again, it's hearing people speaking for us. Why can't we tell our own story? Yeah. And I, think, and I think going back to hearing happiness, I think that's also why people resonate so well to me putting my personal stories in there. It's not just that I have this authority coming in as a historian, but I'm also somebody who lived through and is living yeah. through some of these issues that I talk about in this book. Mm-hmm. And that provides an insight or credibility that I think hearing people might not have in mm-hmm. writing the book. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, if I hear you, I mean, one way to put it, and I'm just kind of like trying to echo back what mm-hmm. I hear is, you know, your book is about all these options that people face, but mm-hmm so often all those options are converging on a norm, which is the person being like the normal person, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And and what you're trying, part of what you're saying is that that's not the way it's going to play out. People are going to make all kinds of different decisions mm-hmm. and end up in all kinds of different places. There is no place we can converge. And so then what we have to do is kind of attend to them as individuals where they're at, right? Yes. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, recognize the variability of their choices. So it's not that like one choice is better than the other. It's just yeah. choices. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I'm somebody, I'm a deaf person. I mean, I have like 98, 99% hearing loss. Mm-hmm. I'm a perfect candidate for cochlear implant, but I wear hearing aids because that's what I've worn my whole life. And that's what I have been adjusted to. But I'm also someone who relies heavily on lip reading. I don't sign because I don't have a signing community yeah. around me, and I never really did. But people make that assumption about me, you know, oh, Jay might sign, mm. we have to get an ALS interpreter. And I'm like, well, that doesn't really help me because I'm yeah. not fluent in ASL. Yeah. So I'm going to yeah. have, you know, translation issues here. <laughs> um, and also, like, I think about audiologists who read my chart and say, why don't you have a cochlear implant? You're a perfect mm. candidate. I'm like, well, why don't you go have brain surgery? Like, are you comfortable <laughs> making that decision? <laughs> like, what's wrong yeah. with the choice I have made when it's yeah. working just fine with my day-to-day life? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it's that prescriptive force, I think, that bothers me so much. So you've you've mentioned a couple different threads of uh, your current research and, and where it's headed. What, how do you frame the the next thing you're up to? Well, I'm doing many different things to summarize basically everything I'm doing. My current and future research all looks at the development of technology, the development of technology, the development of medical expertise from the perspective of deaf people. Mm-hmm. So the people who are the bottom of all these top-down push for normality and careers, I want to see how they respond. I want to see what kind of non-conventional, non-conformative solutions they come Mm. up with. I want to see where radical design emerges from that. And, you know, I talked very briefly about the people making harnesses or improving the design of their I think it is so fascinating to see this tinkering coming Mm -hmm. out of the user because I'm wondering if it makes a shift our understanding about how we develop technology. And, you know, we can talk about disabled people working in collaboration with engineers and designers and development, but what if there's a resistance to that? And that's kind of what I'm looking at now. You know, I have a piece coming out in a few months about the beauty of hearing aids, Mm -hmm. kind of tying in some of these ideas about design and what it means on one hand to design the actual hearing aid, you know, for color or style and yeah. how that differs a more radical perspective where you like, I don't know, bedazzle your hair. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> people have done. I mean, yeah, yeah. there's lots of do-it-yourself instruction manuals on the internet about how you can like add charm or paint your hearing aid or things like yeah. that. So I think it's really a fascinating history here. Jay, uh, thank you so much for your time today. It's wonderful talking to you as always. And I'm really excited about this new work you're doing. Yeah, thank you. And thank you again for having me. And, you know, I can talk all day about this kind of stuff. So I think we should talk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thanks again, Jay.
I hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Peoples and Things, like most things in this world, depends on the work of many people. I want to thank my brother Jake Vinsel for writing the music for the show. I want to thank my buddy Juliana Castro for designing the logos for the podcast. You can check out her work at julianacastro.co. Peoples and Things is a production of Virginia Tech Publishing and the University Libraries at Virginia Tech. Production activities are supported by the Athenaeum, a space in the library that acts as a hub for digital humanities teaching, learning, and creation. Joe Fort is the Athenaeum Coordinator and Digital Humanities Specialist at VT Libraries, and he serves as producer and sound engineer for the podcast. For information about other podcasts from Virginia Tech Publishing, visit publishing.vt.edu. I also want to thank you for listening. Thanks.